Welcome to McCrary Broadcasting. I'm Nathan McCrary as we are in episode four of the McCrary Broadcasting podcast. And today it's kind of an interesting, it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, the topic that I just wanted to kind of delve into is coincidences. Have you ever had a coincidence that just blew your mind and you, it, you just kind of dwelled on it and thought about it and were amazed by it? I've had a couple of those incidents, incidences in my life, but one recently that just kind of blew my mind. I mean, it really did. And I started looking into coincidences uh, around the, the world and the history that we know, and I just was fascinated by it. So I figured I'd, you know, I was looking for something to talk about on the podcast as we're kind of in the lull of the sporting world. Uh, football camps are opening up and generally do uh, podcasts that have something to do with sports. And we'll, we'll have a sports element to the topic of coincidences. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to get into the power of coincidences and just kind of make you make you think about and listen to the the different coincidences that have happened to me recently and then some of the more fascinating coincidences that history has found so let's get into it and uh, well what is a coincidence at first uh to, to start off what is a coincidence in the 1989 paper methods of studying coincidences mathematicians percy diaconis and frederick Masteller considered defining a coincidence as a rare event but they decided that that's too much to permit careful study so instead, they settled on a coincidence as a surprising concurrence of events perceived as meaningfully related with no apparent causal connection. So that's kind of a, a good, good definition. And I'll tell you why I'm talking about this. So my fiance, Tiffany, and I took the dogs for a walk. We have uh, a couple dogs, Marley and Bo, and we went walking and uh, didn't have headphones in like I normally do. And we're just kind of walking and it popped in my head that over, I guess over the years, I've tried to go back and remember all of my teachers that I've had from kindergarten all the way up through high school, which gets more difficult once you get into middle school because in my middle school, they broke out into pods and you had four different teachers and a homeroom teacher and so on, just like in high school. But kindergarten, first and second, third and fourth and fifth grade, I generally remembered pretty well, uh, remembered all the teachers' names and their faces and kind of talked about them and, and or thought about them. And I was asking Tiffany, I, and I, uh, we were just taking the dogs for a walk, and I said, do you, this is just the other day, I said, do you ever think about your teachers? Do you remember who your teachers are and what their names were? And she says, yeah, because my kindergarten teacher I may be getting this wrong, but she only had three teachers basically because they they advanced with her to the next grade, and I, that, so that made it a little bit more easier. Well, I went to With Elementary School in Hampton, Virginia, for uh, kindergarten and first grade, and then I moved to Armstrong Elementary School in Hampton, Virginia, for second through fifth grade, and I remember all of my teachers' names. Then my family moved to Marietta. And I went to Dickerson Middle School, and I remember my sixth grade teachers pretty distinctly. And uh, we kind of were going through our, the names of our teachers. I know this is getting long-winded, but here's the, the point. 
were walking the dogs, talking about our teachers. And I said, I had a teacher in sixth grade. Here, here was my homeroom teacher, Ms. Burris. I had my math teacher, Ms. Weintraub. I had my, my science teacher, Ms. Sussman, who still is a teacher at Dickerson Middle School, I think. She was there last year and or two years ago. And then I mentioned another teacher's name. I don't want to say her name because and I'll tell you why. And so we'll call her Miss Chisholm. And I said, Tiffany, I had this teacher named Miss Chisholm, and I remember her. She was very sweet and, and quiet. And, and Tiffany said, well, you know what? That's weird because we have a client. Now, Tiffany's a estate planning attorney. And she talks to me all, all the time about the investigations they have to do for estates and probates and wills and trusts and all kind of stuff. But this out of the blue. She says, you know, it's weird because we have a, a client who has that name and it's, it's unique. I hadn't, I, I didn't, didn't hear, I hadn't heard that name very often. And she says the, her client's name and it's my sixth grade teacher. Her client that she's been working with over the last couple months is my sixth grade teacher. Out of nowhere, we're on this walk, and I just brought up the topic of, hey, do you rem remember your teacher's names? And it turns out, coincidentally, that she is working currently with my sixth grade teacher. I think she was a math teacher. Was she math? No, she was social studies or something. But I pulled my Dickerson Middle School yearbook out. I started flipping through the pages, and there it is. We confirmed this is her. That's her. She is she's working with my sixth grade teacher, who's unfortunately her mother passed away, and they're working on getting the will probated and all that kind of stuff. And it's sensitive because there's client privilege, attorney privilege, and, and, you know, personal things. So she doesn't know that she's going to mention to her client that I was one of her students. She may probably doesn't even remember me, but I mean, how, how crazy is that? So it just got me thinking about coincidences. And I think the most popular, the most commonly known coincidences is the uh, event of coincidence. I don't know what you'd call it, is Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, two American presidents, share a multitude of barely believable coincidences. Both were killed from gunshot wounds to the back of the head. Both died on a Friday. Both died before a celebration. Kennedy was assassinated on the eve of Thanksgiving. Lincoln was killed right before Easter. And each one of them were accompanied by their wife and another couple. Both had a friend called Billy Graham. Both had four children. Both had secretaries named after the other. Kennedy's secretary was named Miss Lincoln, while Lincoln's secretary was named Miss John. And both of their successors were vice presidents whose last name was Johnson. And that's, that's really unusual. And, and Lincoln was killed in Ford's Theater. Kennedy was killed while riding in a Lincoln, which was made by Ford. So there's all those, those coincidences, eerie coincidences. You also have John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who obviously were instrumental in the Constitution being written, and, and they both died on the 50th anniversary, July 4th, 1826, 
just a few hours apart. They died at the same time. They think, think minutes apart. Jefferson was 83 and John Adams had turned 90 uh, the year before. So that is a coincidence that's commonly known. But there's a couple other ones that blew. When I looked into coincidences, I mean, there were, I'm reading some of these stories and like chills go all over my body. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really weird. So one of them was these twin. This, is, this was featured in People magazine, and I don't know when. There's other stories online about it. But these two twin brothers, separated at birth, grew up without any knowledge of each other's existence. Their lives paralleled in very unusual ways. When they were adopted, their new adoptive parents both named them James. All right? They both grew up to be police officers. They both then married women named Linda. Each had a son. Their son's name, both of them named their son James Allen. Different spelling on Allen, but still. And each also had a dog that they named Toy. Both brothers later got divorced and ended up remarrying women who shared the same name, Betty. <laughs> what? So, very unusual. Very unusual. But I'm going to tell you my favorite story, really, of all, of all time. History story of all time. And I read it in Michael Medved's book, The American Miracle. In 1605, a 12-year-old Indian boy named Squanto, was kidnapped by an English sea captain. He was taken to London along with five other members of his tribe. And while in London, he learned English in order to communicate with Fernando Gorgis, who was an explorer and, and uh, really wanted to establish his own colony in the new land. So he wanted to have Indians, uh, Native Americans, to be able to teach him things and, and serve as uh, kind of ambassadors to Indian tribes to protect him and build relationships. So Gorgas kept Squanto for nine years until Squanto was eventually allowed to return to the New World on a ship captained by John Smith, Captain John Smith, who had led the Jamestown colony. All right. So they made it back to the New World after a harsh crossing, obviously, months at sea. Squanto finally gets back to the New World. He's making his way back to the area known as Patuxet, which is his home tribe, when he was kidnapped again for a second time and sent back to Europe to be sold as slaves because English, some English uh, associates of Captain John Smith were kidnapping Indians and then selling them on the slave trade for like $3,000. So... They put Squanto back in a ship. He was sent back to Europe. And when they arrived on the Spanish coast where they would sell slaves, a group of monks, Spanish monks, intervened and negotiated the release of Squanto. Probably had to pay for him. And they bought as many 
slaves as they could because the Spanish church strongly opposed slavery and, um, and the enslavement of Indians. So the monks would nurse, they would get the Indians off the slave block, slave trade block, and nurse them to health, and they would teach them about Christianity. The monks helped Squanto return to England from Spain, where he lived with a foster family who helped sharpen his English skills and taught him how to read and write. So at this point, Squanto was in his 20s. Okay. He finally finds a secure passage back to America. But when he arrived, he found the Patuxet tribe had been ravaged by illness. His tribe was wiped off the face of the earth. He was the lone survivor of the Patuxet tribe, and he had no one. But he stayed in the area he was familiar with and eventually found his way to a tribe led by a powerful chief named Massasoit. The chief recognized Squanto's skills in English language and allowed him to stay with his tribe because he realized the English settlers weren't going away and a new group had settled on an outpost near their home. So Massasoit realized the English um, had muskets and cannons and, and he wanted to acquire some of those valuable items to protect his people because there was a hostile Indian tribe, the Narragansett, I'm butchering the name, Narragansett uh, people who were hostile towards Massasoit's tribe. So his plan was to use Squanto as an ambassador with the Englishmen. So on March 16th, 1621, very well documented, the pilgrims landed, who landed at uh, Plymouth, uh, survived the horrific winter. Some of them did. They had lost 42 of their original 102 members. Of the 18 wives who traveled, 13 were dead. They took advantage of the mild day in March to begin to fortify their settlement from attack by the Indians because they were obviously scared. And they had limited numbers of people, and they, and they knew they were extremely vulnerable. They had to come up with a plan. So the pilgrims began to meet at, the, at a hilltop overlooking their huts to kind of look at a defense plan when a single Indian emerged from the wood line. He was naked except for deerskin around his waist, and he was excitingly rushing towards the pilgrim encampment, exclaiming, Welcome, Englishmen! Astonished by the sight of an Indian, but perplexed by hearing clear English bellowing from him as he ran towards them, the pilgrims could only send their defense force to try and intercept him because he was a threat. But the Indian continued to yell, Welcome, Englishmen! De-escalating the fears, as the Englishman, uh, excuse me, as the Indian came closer, he began to inquire, inquire, do you have any beer? Well, unfortunately, the pilgrims had no beer, but they did provide a sort of brandy drink to the Indian who identified himself as Samoset from the tribe of the chief Massasoit. See, Samoset had been with Squanto and learned English in order to be able to welcome the pilgrims and inquire about wine. Basically, the only thing he knew, the only English he knew. The meeting between the Indian Samoset and the pilgrims led to Squanto being brought into the pilgrims' encampment. And Squanto served as an ambassador to the pilgrims and to Chief Massasoit. And so much so 
that a friendly treaty was documented by the pilgrims based on the encounter of Samoset and Squanto, which pledged the two groups were going to defend each other from attack. The treaty lasted more than 15, uh, excuse me, 50 years. And Squanto, when the Massasoit tribe left the area, probably because the Englishmen were getting too, uh, were becoming uh, too many. There were so many around and the settlements were starting. Squanto decided to stay with the pilgrims who had settled on the land of Patuxet, which was his home. He worked with the pilgrims and introduced them to the ways of planting corn and fertilizing the ground fi- the ground with fish. We've all learned about that, hopefully, in grade school. He showed them how to catch and feast on eels, which were abundant in the surrounding rivers. The relationship led to the celebration we know today as Thanksgiving. And the pilgrims saw Squanto as a gift from God. I mean, there's no question about it. And the coincidence that the pilgrims who had heard about these savages, the savage Indians, were there when an Indian came out of the woods screaming, welcome Englishmen, created a bond with them. And then, of course, Squanto was was versed in the Bible and, and Christianity because he was with the monks. And so they trusted him and, and they built quite a relationship. What a happenstance. I mean, all of that, part of the history of our country, and over, over a coincidence. Squanto and Samoset, and, and not enough children know this story. I probably should have saved this to, for Thanksgiving, but it'll be football season by then. We'll, be, we'll have plenty to talk about. So the, the coincidence of Squanto being kidnapped, learning English, becoming a Christian, or not becoming a Christian, learning the Christian ways. He, he, it, there's no solid evidence that he was a Christian, but he was familiar with the Bible and Christianity. And then meeting the pilgrims and then forming this bond to protect each other. What a beautiful story for the founding of our country. But there's another story that absolutely captured my attention when I was looking up coincidences. This story is about Elizabeth Targ. No one's heard of Elizabeth Targ. I never heard of Elizabeth Targ. But she was a psychiatrist. Her father was a a physicist, Russell Targ. And he co-founded the Stanford Research Institute to investigate psychic phenomenon. Okay. Elizabeth participated in his ESP experiments, and he encouraged her to remotely view and predict her birthday presents before she ever opened them, which she said she she could, and she claimed she got them right most of the time. Elizabeth was an academic superstar. She graduated from high school at 15 years old, fluent in Russian, German, and French, and eventually graduated from Stanford Medical School. By the way, I got this story from Psychology Today, an article written by Jill Neumark, Neumark. N-E-I-M-A-R-K, from 2004. So Elizabeth Targ was, a, was an academic superstar. She'd participated in these ESP experiments with her father. Targ and her colleagues at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco published a double-blind study. You've heard about double-blind studies with all this COVID stuff. And the Western Journal of Medicine that rocketed her to fame in the field of complementary and alternative medicines. 40 healers around the United States were recruited to pray for the health of patients with advanced AIDS. 
the prayed for group had significantly fewer opportunistic illnesses than the control group. And Targ instantly became the poster child for a fledgling new field exploring prayer and healing. Elizabeth was our hero, wrote Mike uh, Mitchell Krukoff, a Duke University Medical Center cardiologist who had pioneered complementary therapies in patients with heart disease. Targ's research was impressive enough that the National Institute of Health gave her $1.5 million to carry out two more distant prayer studies, one on AIDS and the other on glioblastoma multiforme. Don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's an aggressive and almost inevitable fatal brain tumor. In Europe and the United States, there's approximately two to three cases, new cases per 100,000 people annually. Very rare. It is a particularly gnarly disease from which people rarely recover, says her father, Russell Targ. And that's why she wanted to study it. So she began studying it after the $1.5 million advance. Two months later, Targ, who was 40 at the time, began fertility treatments. Don't know what that has anything to do with the story, but she and her uh, fiance, physicist Mark Cummings, wanted a family. That spring, however, she began finding it difficult to pronounce words with the letter B in it. And one morning, the left side of her face sagged. A high-resolution MRI was done, and it revealed she was suffering from grade 4 glioblastoma multiforme, brain tumor. Word of the horrific diagnosis spread, and the healers began calling, visiting and praying from distances around the world. They couldn't save her. Targ died 111 days after her diagnosis. The coincidences, if we may call them that in the story, did not end with Targ's death. Okay? Kate McPherson, a healer and registered nurse in Salinas, California, had participated in Targ's first study on AIDS and prayer. About a month after Elizabeth died, McPherson said she had a dream. And in the dream... Targ's husband, Cummings, was, but they did get married before she passed away. Cummings, in the dream, was sitting on a weathered wooden box in an old European town with cobbled streets and stone buildings. He was devastated by the death of his wife, Elizabeth, and kept repeating something to himself. McPherson said in the dream, all she couldn't really understand what it was, but she thought it was a different language, like it was Hebrew. The sounds were ya, vas, liu, bliu. She wrote it down. She wrote to the dream down. And the phonetics of the sounds that Mark Cummings was making in the dream. Ya, vas, liu, bliu. She sent them to Mark, Elizabeth's widow. Elizabeth's father, Russell Targ, recalls the Sunday morning when Cummings came over to his home and read McPherson's letter out loud. Targ instantly recognized the symbols as the Russian words for I love you. Elizabeth was not only fluent in the language, but had traveled there with her dad. Yet another coincidence, so many mystical things have happened to me in the aftermath of Elizabeth's death, says Mark Cummings, her widow, who to this day wears not only his wedding band, but Elizabeth's as well. He says, the stories are mind-blowing 
even to the parapsychologists who study these things for a living. Fascinating story. Elizabeth Targ, no one's ever heard of her, but wow. What a story. Fascinating stories on coincidences. Uh, the only other sports, the only sports related coincidence I could find was in 1984, senior backup quarterback Frank Reich led the University of Maryland back from a 31 point deficit to defeat previously undefeated Miami Hurricanes. At that time, it was an NCAA record and the greatest comeback in the history of college football. Nine years later, fate would pop up again with Reich right in the middle of it. 1980, in 1993, Reich was subbed in for injured Jim Kelly, who had led the Buffalo Bills for so many years. Playoff game, they were down by 32 points to the Houston Oilers. Frank Reich comes in and leads Buffalo to a playoff victory, which is considered the greatest NFL comeback of all time. It was a crazy coincidence and absolutely ludicrous. And of course, now Frank Reich is the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. So there you go. Hey, power of coincidence. Look it up. Do your own research. There's all kind of fascinating stories out there that will blow your mind. We just hit the tip of the iceberg here. Thanks for tuning in to McCrary Broadcasting. I'm Nathan McCrary. Check out the website, mccrarybroadcasting.com. We update the website. I update the website fairly regularly with stories and articles and all kind of stuff. We'll put up something about the power of coincidence on the website today. Thanks for listening in. Nathan McCurry saying so long, and we'll see you next week.